Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance being joined virtually. Lance, how are you today? Tim, couldn't be better. It's a, it's a great day. How are you? I'm doing great. We have a great episode for our listening audience here today. We speak to a really talented woman named Karen Smith, who has teamed with CrimeCon to do a new podcast called Shattered Souls. Yeah, we had expressed curiosity about what happened with the uh, Thinking Sideways podcast feed, and it turns out that CrimeCon acquired the Thinking Sideways feed and produced their first, I believe it's their first original true crime podcast, and got Karen Smith on board, who is a highly decorated uh, individual in law enforcement and forensics and crime scene analysis, blood splatter analysis, uh and a really cool woman, and and she has a really cool emotional show. That's right, and Karen was part of CrimeCon at Home that they did just last weekend, and you can check out all her work at her site at barebonesforensic.com. She's been on HLN, on Nancy Gray, CNN, really prolific, and I hope you enjoy the interview. It's a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, she'll make you feel a lot smarter when she's done. And check us out live Thursday night at 9 p.m. on a site called Get Vocal. It does stream directly to Facebook, YouTube, and our Twitter pages. But if you want to interact directly, the best place to do it is on a site called Get Vocal. There's a link in the show notes. We are having Celine Beth Calderon on on this Thursday night to talk about her documentary, Killing Theodore. Yeah, what a cool platform Get Vocal is. Their True Crime Thursday night consists of us, uh, True Crime Bullshit. Mike Morford's got a show on there. There's a number of true crime shows you can pop in from room to room, stick with us the entire time. It doesn't It doesn't matter. And then, um, yeah, you can contribute. You can tr- grab a spot and be on camera, or you could just be in the message section and, and leave us uh, comments and contribute that way. Super fun and really easy to, um, to watch from any one of those social platforms. And we do have some surprise guests coming up that are, that's in the uh, in the works in the hopper, as they say. We might have a uh, a certain former U.S. marshal on towards the end of the month. That might happen. Not going to right. not going to name names. That's right. Could be any number of former U.S. marshals, but uh, but we'll see. So <laughs> thank you everybody for listening. We appreciate it. And check out Karen's show, Shattered Souls. And you know what? Go over to crawlspace-media.com. Check out all of the shows on the networks. There are some good ones that run the entire spectrum of genres. Welcome to the show, Karen Smith. How are you, Karen? I'm doing great, guys. How are you guys doing? Oh, we are doing better than ever. It's so cool to have you on the show. You have an amazing background in criminal justice and law enforcement, and now you have joined the ranks of uh, podcasting. You've, you've elevated your game to podcasting through CrimeCon, <laughs> so uh, we couldn't be happier that you took time out of your day to join us. Well, I appreciate that. You guys, listen, this is a great platform, and I am thrilled to be here with you guys. Well, thanks a lot. We're thrilled to have you because uh, you've got a really interesting background, and you've you've teamed with some of our friends, some of the people we love most in this industry. So tell us a little bit about your uh, background before we get into your um, show. How far back do you want me to go? When I was a child. Oh, yeah. Take it. <laughs> all of it. Take it all. <laughs> Way back. We have all day. Right. No, uh, my background, believe it or not, is in radio. 
which is crazy. It's such a crazy story. And it's a little bit unbelievable, but it's true. I did radio in the 90s. And I left there because there was no stability. And my station that I was at got bought and sold three times in three years. And I needed a retirement. So I had made friends with some police officers in Jacksonville, Florida. And I did some ride alongs. And I thought, you know, the pay is crap. But it's a retirement and it's a stability. So I went to the academy at night and worked in radio during the day. And I got hired on JSO, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And I did three years of patrol. And when I was a patrol officer, I was also on a thing called the task force and the field force. The task force, we were a group of officers in a certain zone of the city. And we did burglary deployments, robbery deployments. I was an undercover prostitute on Phillips Highway. <laughs> and I would wow. do, yeah, drug buy bus. And I got really immersed in the underbelly of Jacksonville, for lack of a better term, really quickly. And I wasn't that great of a patrol officer. I just didn't have that, that chase them instinct thing. I was more in my brain. So when my friend told me about the crime scene unit, I said, you know, that's really cool. So I did a little transfer with her. And I thought, this is it. This is where I belong in the nerd squad. So I, I transferred nice. to the crime scene unit and I was just a lot more comfortable figuring out the puzzles of crime scenes. It just fit like a hand in glove. And that's where I stayed until I left. Now you're talking about the puzzles of crime scenes, mm -hmm. physical puzzles that also um, connect to the, uh, I guess, the mindset of the criminal, maybe. Um, my, my, I guess what I'm trying to say is, can you get something from a bloodstain pattern analysis that'll tell you something about the person who committed the crime? Not necessarily the person, unless it's their DNA. Yeah. I mean, that's always great if you can find the perpetrator's blood at a crime scene. That's always fantastic. But no, it, it can go into the mindset of, you know, is it a personal crime versus a crime of opportunity? But the bloodstains don't tell the whole story. They can sort of tell a story. Yeah based on the patterns and what you find and what likely happened in that space. But it doesn't tell the whole story. It's a whole team effort. Everybody has their goals in a crime scene. Mine was just the forensics. Mine was just to find out the evidence, see if I can find answers through that, and then pass it off to either the homicide detective, sex crimes, whoever it was, and then the prosecutor when we went to pretrial and trial. Okay. So uh, you said it's like it's like a mystery each crime scene. So tell us, like, what what, what does that mean? Like, what you know, I would walk into a crime scene and be stepping all over evidence. Like, what what do you mean? So you you Tim, you'd pass out. You'd see a drop of blood, and you'd see, you'd be like, oh. I pass out a, a drop of my own blood. Yeah, it's yeah. over. You're yeah. Like I'm going. I'd down. be on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's it's you have to distance yourself, and that's one of the hardest things to do is find a way to disassociate yourself from what you're seeing. And that's not easy. It's really not. And it's a learned behavior. Um, the first time I went to, it was a suicide. I was in training, my second phase of training. So it was my second month on the street. And this young man had shot himself upstairs in a bedroom. And um, God, I went up the stairs and I heard this horrible, horrible gurgling sound. And I didn't know what it was. And I grabbed my training officer and I said, what the hell is that? And he took my hand. He goes, you have to see this. You have to see this. This is what happens. And we went upstairs to the bedroom and this young man 
was laying on the floor gurgling. It was the death rattles. Oh and my God. I, yeah. And I, I looked at him and I, this wave of nausea hit me out of nowhere. So I ran back down the stairs and I threw up in the bushes out front. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, you know, it happens. I didn't yeah. know. I'd, I'd never seen anything like that before. What does that do to you? Did you um, come out of that feeling like you're stronger? Like the next time I see this, I'll probably handle it better or. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I do. And it, my training was just insane. But after that, it, what was incredible was I, I thought I was going to get in trouble for getting sick. You know, I thought you're a police officer. You should be able to handle this. Yeah. The best thing was my sergeant came over and he patted me on the back and he said, you know what? If you hadn't have gotten sick, I would have thought something was wrong with you. But you're okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you need to go back in there and finish. And he made me go back in and I had to secure the scene and wait for the crime scene detectives and homicide to show up. So, yeah, it did make me stronger. It made me understand what a death looked like. The only dead body I'd ever seen was my grandfather at that point. He was in a casket. I was 10. So you're saying that doesn't prepare you for a career? In- no, okay. no. Okay, let me write that down. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And don't, <laughs> <Take notes. laughs> don't 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 get me wrong, Karen. We we Tim and I are both uh stone cold hardened uh individuals. So uh-huh. so hardened. We're yeah, we 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 roll in pretty uh pretty tough. So Rolling hot. Okay. Yeah. It's the platform. Yeah, it it does it to you. You know? It's a <laughs> it's a learned behavior. It is. It's a learned behavior. No, really, it really is. So the more that you see it and the more you know what to expect, it doesn't become easier per se. It just becomes a natural progression. You know what to expect when you go in. But there's still cases that will hit you sideways because of either the circumstances, um, if there's children involved or an infant, my God, that never gets easier ever. Or an elderly helpless person, forget it. You have to learn how to sequester those feelings immediately so that you can focus on the facts. Yeah. Have you ever had a moment in your career where you had a hard time uh, separating and and sequestering those feelings? Oh, yeah. Lots. Yeah. Um, A number of different reasons. Um, It just depended on the circumstances. Some cases, for whatever reason, hit me harder than others. And there's really no way to explain it. It's just maybe some days... I was just having a bad day when I got the call. I really don't know. But yeah. I think the investigator you talk to will tell you that there are certain cases you carry and certain cases you can let go. I can't explain it. Now, on your website, uh, barebonesforensic.com, I was just looking at your bio, and it says you conducted 500 death investigations and worked 20,000 other cases from right. burglaries to multiple shootings, police-involved homicides. Mm-hmm. 20,000 yeah. other cases. That is an extraordinary yeah. number. Is that typical or you do you just, just crank, um, them, in, crank them out? In Jacksonville, yes, it is typical. I think everybody oh. that spent over a decade in the crime scene unit can claim those numbers. And here's why. Jacksonville's huge. You know, it's 1.5 million people per capita. And it's, it's a county city. Uh, they were consolidated back in the 60s. So it's the city is the county. So it's 842 square miles. And there were only 26 crime scene detectives for that whole city to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So normally there were only, if we had a full squad on a full day, there were only four, maybe five of us working that whole city. And we worked everything from carjackings to burglaries, to robberies, to sex assaults, to shootings, to aggravated batteries. 
stolen cars, you name it, we went. So I'm working between six and 14 calls a day. That was typical for me. Is that overwhelming? Yes. Did you feel like you couldn't, you're going to burn out? I mean. And I did. I did burn. Yeah, I did. Um, And it's not just the further you progress in the crime scene unit, the more you're relied upon to handle the really hard cases. So as you get better at your job, the onus is on you to work the complicated cases because the state attorney, the assistant state attorney would call me on my phone or homicide would call me on my phone and say, Hey, we need you. We need you. We need you. So even on my days off, my phone would ring and I would go in on my days off. So yeah, it's sort of that, you know, they, they wanted somebody with the education, with the experience to come in and help. But for me, it became daunting because I was exhausted. I was so tired mm. and I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, so you made a couple of shifts in your career. You, you shifted from, from that to uh, instructing courses in uh, crime scene field work. Right. Was, was that because you uh, were, were getting exhausted from doing the forensic work with, uh, with the police station? Yeah, I left JSO after 14 years. Um, you know, I did, I, I tell people I did a 25 or 30 year career in 14 years that that's a fact. And anybody that stayed there, you know, my friend Kim stayed 25 years, God bless her. I don't know how she did it. She's a stronger person than me. And, um, so we were run pretty ragged. And after I left, I wanted to train the next generation of crime scene people because it's important for them to understand and, and to pass on the knowledge that I had with all of my experience to them, because I wanted them to work the scenes correctly. I wanted them to understand the scientific method, to understand how to stay objective, to talk to them if they had a hard time with a case and help them. So that was sort of a natural progression for me. What's some of your favorite courses that you teach? <laughs> like what, do you, what do you love to teach when someone comes to you and they sign up? Well, when I was teaching privately, probably either basic or advanced bloodstain pattern analysis because you can learn so much from it and it's so intricate and there's so many different factors involved. I love seeing the light bulb come on. And when you have a student and they see this complex stuff, but you walk them through step by step and you see that light bulb turn on, that's a great feeling because you know they got it. Right. Um, well, tell us a little bit about like wh- what can you learn at a crime scene without DNA, right? So if you arrive to a, a murder scene and you're trying to investigate it forensically before you can even test for DNA, what what are some things that you might, some common things you might be able to learn? It depends on if it's, I mean, if it's a murder, you're going to assume it's somewhat violent, right? If you have a strangulation murder, there may not be blood but there's other evidence that may be left behind. It just depends on the scene. Um, It depends on the victim. What are we going to find about the victim doing victimology? The homicide detectives would dive into them and their background and, you know, where were they? What, what, what's their history? Do they have a bad breakup? Do they, you know, do drugs? Maybe are they in with a bad crowd? All those things. And it just depends. Every single item of evidence in a crime scene can provide you something. And that's Locard's exchange principle, which is every contact leaves a trace. What that trace is, we don't know. Is it DNA? Is it hair? Is it a fiber? Is it dust or dirt or whatever? You can find something if you think about it 
and try to stay two or three steps ahead of the process. Looking at some of the courses that you teach in field work and you have uh, laser mapping techniques. What is laser mapping techniques or what <laughs> grammatically correct? What are laser mapping techniques? Well, when you go to a crime scene, you have to diagram it. And back in the day, we would use measuring tapes and pencils and paper. Well, that's not entirely accurate. So we got a laser laser measurement system. And all it is, is it's kind of like what they use to map streets. Um, when you see the surveyors out there, it's a little bit like that. But you can map a crime scene with a laser and just take very, very accurate measurements. So if you have an outdoor scene, that's a street that's 150, 200 yards long, like a drive-by. You can take the prism on one side and you take the laser on the other, and you can literally map in every piece of evidence very quickly. So that's what that is. Wow. <laughs> you you make it uh, you make it sound so... Uh... I want to take one of your courses is what I'm saying. You yeah. Make sound, you make it sound so fascinating. And I feel like if I took one of these courses, I would totally brag about it after for a long time. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, it is interesting to watch students sort of, they look overwhelmed. You know, they got the, the deer in the headlights look on the first day because they're like, holy crap, how am I going to do this? And by the third or fourth day, they're salty. They are salty. They just want to get their hands on the equipment and go. And that's the <laughs> feeling in the world. Because you know you've succeeded. You know they're going to know what they're doing when they leave. You know they're going to do the right thing at a crime scene. And that's what it's all about, working for the victim. Now, did you have the deer in the headlights look when CrimeCon asked you to partner with them to do a new podcast? <laughs> that's an understatement. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yes, absolutely. My nerves right now, I mean, we launch in a few days. And my nervous anxiety has been through the roof. So you know, this, these are my cases. These are my stories. It's not like I'm taking somebody else's stuff and running with it. This is mine. Yeah. So I'm talking from an emotional standpoint, you know, who wants to be judged? I don't, frankly, but for me, the victim's stories and what happened is a lot more important than maybe some of the judgy, you know, reviews that I'll get, whatever. Yeah, I mean, if you get if you get a couple of uh, bad reviews, it's like uh, what Tim loves to quote the movie um, "Ralph Breaks the Internet," the classic classic movie. It's all right. it's it's about them, not about you. You can't have your uh, right. um, like amazing background, this career of law enforcement and and criminal investigation. You can't have that uh, diminished by one like two star review. That's you know some jerk decides to leave. I teach college classes now at University of Florida. I teach the graduate program and I'll go back and look at my student reviews and I'll get, you know, 20 or 30 great ones. And then there's that one student who's disgruntled. <laughs> and which one do you focus on? You focus on the crappy one. So right. I have to get that out of my head. Yeah, it's a little bit of a learning curve, you know, uh, Karen, if, if you ever need to talk to us about it, we're here for you. Um, <laughs> you know, we can really help you walk through this process. It's, uh, you know, it's it's uncomfortable. I'll be honest. It's very, I, I Lance actually threw up the first time uh, we got a negative comment. I did. Okay. I, I, would, I, like to, <laughs> I would like to avoid that. It takes an act of Congress and the Senate for me to throw up, so... So tell us how this project uh, came about, though, with CrimeCon. Oh, it's such a cool story. I had done CrimeCon 2018 and 2019. I had gone to Chicago with them for CrimeCon on the Run. And then they invited me to come to a CrowdSolve event up in Seattle where we worked on two cold cases with 300 armchair detectives from all over the world. And I was so thrilled to do that. 
And right before I had left, I had written a book of my cases based on my journals that I kept my whole career. And the book thing, I wanted to get a publishing deal. Well, give me a break. That's not as easy as it sounds. And I thought, you know, I've got a background in radio. Why don't I just do a podcast? So that's what I did. And I went to CrowdSolve and I talked with Kevin Balf from Red Seat Ventures. And I said, would you just give me some feedback if I send you the first couple of episodes? He's like, sure, send them on. Well, he had everybody listen to them. And they emailed me and they said, we're looking for a replacement for our podcast, Thinking Sideways. And we think you'd be a perfect fit. Would you be interested? And I, of course, I said, are you kidding? Yes, I would love to do that. And here we are. That's so cool. That is really cool. And you, you mentioned Kevin from uh, Red Seat Ventures. They're the organization that plans CrimeCon. They're great. Kevin and Elise and Merritt, they're uh, so communicative when you're, when you're um, uh, you know, for, for a group that is putting t- together this incredibly uh, elaborate um, event, this CrimeCon, plus all the ones that they do, they're doing CrimeCon at home and then they do the crowd solve. They're right. always busy. And it really cool that Kevin listened to it and had everyone listen to it and, and thought so much about it that they wanted to um, have you be the show, have your show be the one that, that takes the uh, thinking sideways, uh, not, not replaces, but you know, to, to fill that, fill that spot. Um, exactly. It was a yeah. really huge compliment. And um, I was just thrilled. I'm still thrilled. And, and I'm, I have to pinch myself here and there. So what is a typical episode of Shattered Souls going to look like? (laughs) Well, I wish I could tell you there was a typical one, but there's not. I took six of the cases from my book. And the first episode, one and two, I've taken each case and broken it into two episodes. So you've got the first episode with a cliffhanger and then the ending in the next episode. And it took that long for me to tell their stories, the victim stories and what happened to me at the scene the emotional fallout that I had from some of these cases. And that's what it's about. Mostly the victim stories. And these are victims that people haven't heard about. They may be a demographic that is different from you, that the media didn't pick up and run with, but it doesn't diminish the importance of their life. And that's what I wanted to put out there was these were living, breathing human beings. You may not have agreed with the way they live their life. Not my problem. They were a victim. And um, I think that's really important. So that's my focus. Very cool. Yeah, the the show is uh, Shattered Souls, and the tagline is A Forensic Detective's Diary. And it's so haunting. Like, the the logo is, is haunting, and it makes me want to listen to this to get the insider scoop because that's what we're always looking for you know and no matter how haunting it is you want to hear how it all comes together and you want to hear about the victims uh so that you can move forward with a little more empathy were you did you have that in mind when you were coming up with um you know the the logo and just the uh the theme the mood of the show absolutely yes i actually um went out and farmed out a bunch of artists to make a logo for me And when the artist sent that back, I was stunned. I was dumbfounded. We made a couple of small changes, but if you'll notice uh, the woman that's walking, her, her mind is just scattered with these little, um, I don't know what you call them, little, little dots that scatter away from her brain. That's exactly how it felt when I would walk away from a horrible homicide. That's how I felt. 
And I thought that tells the whole story right there. So that's why I went with it. Yeah, it's it's really great. Do you have any um, highlights that you want to tease, maybe some upcoming episodes? Uh, the first two episodes, I chose them as one and two because that was the first case I took home. It was the first case that really, really bothered me. And it, believe it or not, this is 15 and a half years later, and it still does. I have a nightmare and it's recurring. I never know when it's going to hit me. It will wake me in a cold sweat. And uh, I don't know how many times that's happened, but I was kind of hoping by telling her story that it would help make it go away, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, I haven't had the nightmare since I started doing this, so maybe it worked. Maybe. What is the nightmare? Do you uh, mind sharing? I can share a little bit of it. Um, I detail it in the episode, episode one. You'll hear it full bore. But it woke me from a deep sleep after the crime scene that day. And it was just going back into the autopsy suite. And um, her body was on the table in my dream, just like it was. That Everything is exactly the way it was the day before. But she reanimates in my dream. And she gurgles, please help me. And uh, hmm, so even thinking about it, it just gets me a little emotional. Um, and that's what I wanted to do was I wanted to help her. There's nothing else I could do but help her. And I guess that's where it comes from in my, my unconscious brain is just that need to find the answers. So that's, that's in the first episode. You'll hear all about it. Wow. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm hooked. So these are from your actual journals. Yeah. I kept a running journal of every call I ever went on. It was just composition notebooks. I've got like eight or nine of them just filled to the gills with all of my calls. And if something stood out to me, I would make a note in the margin. So what I did is I, I would go back, it would jog my brain and I wrote the book based on the 12 cases that really affected me one way or the other. And then I picked the top six for this first season. That's how it worked. Yeah. Wow. Do you um have some doorway into extra hours in a day? <laughs> no. Is there like a portal that you have? I know, right? I get up about uh, between six and seven in the morning and I dive right in. I love what I do. So it's not work to me. I love it. So I will work, work through lunch. I really don't take a lunch break. Uh, my wife does the same thing. She's got her passion projects. So we work across the room from each other and oh, we bounce each other. I'm not kidding. We, we on, are together. Seven. I'm not on. kidding. S send us a link to the, uh, the extra hours in the day, just like you're going to send uh, Lance the internet booster link. Yeah. Well, we work seven days a week and you know, we work from seven in the morning till probably about five thirty or six at night where we hang it up for the day. We break out our little guitars trying to learn how to play guitar. God, is that a disaster? I suck. And, um, but it's relaxing and you, you can't think of anything else when you're playing guitar. So we, we pluck around for about an hour and then we just get some dinner and watch some TV. That's literally our day. I'm making the prediction right now that you, the next time we speak to you, you're going to be in a full band. You're going to, you, you've started by just plucking away at a guitar. And then, you know, in a, in a month or so, when we speak to you again, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to tell us that you're going on tour and <laughs> you haven't heard me play <laughs> <It's> terrible. <laughs> it's so bad. Guitar is harder than I ever thought it would be. Um, it's, it's really complicated and it's math. 
I mean, you watch uh, videos of Brian May, who is a wonder. You want to teach her about guitar? Watch Brian May videos because he takes you from stem to stern. And it's fascinating to watch how fast his fingers just fly up and down the frets. But um, he can break it down for you. Yeah. Well, well, if guitar is math, what subject is forensic investigation? What is that comparison? Is that also math? Yeah. Yeah, there's some math involved, but you know what? It's the same calculation over and over again. So there's nothing that you really have to learn that's out of the ordinary. Once you have it down and you know what calculation to put either in the calculator or however you want to do it, it's not that complicated. The measurements themselves are complicated. You're using a teeny little eye loop with a light attached to it and millimeter scales, teeny little millimeter scales to measure blood drops. And it's the measurements that's hard because you want to be accurate. And doing that when you've got the stress of a crime scene around you is really difficult. So once you get that down, it's it's really not that complex. You can t- I can teach anybody to do it. It's a matter of being objective and being clinical. That's the hard part. Very cool. So there's some uh, familiar names here that you've worked with and, and you've been, uh, I guess, a consultant. Um on uh, certain certain organizations, but uh, in your bio here, it says that you worked with local law enforcement on the disappearance of Don Lewis, who was um, that was uh, well. Tell us who Don Lewis was. I don't want to I don't want to give any spoilers here. Yeah, I don't want to put too much of this out there. Um, I partnered with Cheryl McCollum, who's a good friend of mine from the Cold Case Research Institute, and she's doing a deep dive into the disappearance of Don Lewis. If people have watched Tiger King, they know who Don Lewis is. So we're just going to follow the leads and see where they go. There's no preconceived notion here. I don't have a dog in the fight. Doesn't matter to me if he if he took off or if he was murdered. One way or the other, we're going to hope to find some answers. So, you know, we're not trying to hamstring anyone. We're not trying to make puzzle pieces fit our story. That's not how it works. We just want to go in and see if there's any leads one way or the other. So we're not going to get an exclusive here? (laughs) <laughs> no, I oh. can't. Because honestly, all I've done is all I have, the information all I have to go on is what Cheryl has sent me, which is pretty rudimentary. But she's got a whole gang of experts in all kinds of different uh, forums to go in and look at the evidence and see if see where it leads. That's awesome. Karen, I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, the Internet has spoken on um, <laughs> what happened with Carol Baskins, husband, Don Lewis. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't see that you come into any other outcome. Yeah. Right. Um, I wish I could take that at face value, but that's not how forensics works. <laughs> okay. Fair. It doesn't, it doesn't work through, uh, the court of public opinion on the internet on Twitter. What if we did a Twitter poll? Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That, 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 that should solve it. No problem. Yeah. No. Um, like I said, there's no dog in the fight with any crime scene that I work with any type of missing person or any type of murder that I work. There's no agenda for me. I don't care who it is. I just want to find the truth. Now, how do you approach someone like Nancy Grace? Because you've appeared on crime stories with her and yeah. she's super intimidated by Tim and I. Oh she met us at CrimeCon <laughs> and she she was like, I can't even talk to those guys. I'm shaking. She couldn't even look us in the eye, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> we're totally kidding um she ran we did a we did a uh, interview with her and she ran through us like a like a steamroll like it was there was no it was like muhammad ali at his best <laughs> we were just on our heels you know like she just she puts you against the ropes basically yeah well yeah that's her job 
She was a prosecutor. That was her job. I mean, that's what she did for over a decade in, in inner city Atlanta. I mean, my God, I can't think of a more difficult place to work. The Nancy that I know is not the Nancy that you've seen or that you know. She is kind and funny and gregarious, and she is uplifting. She will help anybody that she um, works with. I could call her right now and say, hey, Nancy, how are you doing? And she's like, Karen Smith, how are you doing? What can I do for you? That's who she is. A powerhouse for sure, but you shouldn't be intimidated. She is literally one of the nicest people I've ever met. She is. No, no, we, uh, we're we just kidding. Um, but although g- going on her show was a much different experience for us uh, yeah. than interviewing her on on our show um, because she, she was like really trying to pry the information about the Maura Murray case out of us. And, you know, some of that case is just so uh, mysterious and there really aren't answers in some of the, it's like, well, some people think this, you know, and she just wasn't having that. You know what? I was looking at that and I'm not very familiar with the case, but I was reading your websites and some of the information and you know what hit me right off the bat? What? Agatha Christie was right. Yeah. She went missing for 11 days, and some people have termed it sort of a retrograde amnesia. She crashed her car in a ditch, and they found her at a spa, Um, and she said that she didn't remember anything about it, and I thought, that's interesting, and I thought with Maura Murray, has anybody looked at that? Maybe when she had the car crash, she got a concussion and had no idea what she was doing. Maybe she got picked up on the side of the road. I don't know. These are just theories I'm throwing out there. I don't know. No, that's that's reasonable. I, yeah, we do think. Well, actually, I should say, I, I think she hit her head off the windshield. I think uh, Lance isn't isn't quite to that point. Um, so yeah, that that might mean that she she got a concussion and um, made a bad decision, perhaps to get into uh, some random person's car. I don't know. She may not have remembered. Honest yeah. to God, you ever had a concussion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you don't you don't know anything. I've had one. I don't remember. Three hours of my life are gone. Just completely gone. Well, you know, so, never know. Yeah, and you don't even really need to hit your head to have a concussion. The uh, just the impact of hitting something and your head moving and kind of violently and suddenly will yeah. cause a concussion in some cases. And uh, this whole notion of like a you know temp- temporary amnesia or a, or a fugue state or something is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That that keeps popping up in our world recently. A lot of people are talking about it. You know, it's it's existed forever, but just recently it's become more of a topic on other cases that we're looking into. And um, the first thing that came to my mind, I don't know why it just did. Yeah. And then I about the Agatha Christie case, and I thought, man, I don't know. Maybe there's similarities. What do I know? Oh, well, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say similarities to an Agatha Christie mystery. No, no. Some people actually said that that you know this was a, a ploy that she did to pop her next book. I don't know. There's all kinds of theories out there in the internet. Yeah. And, but the thing is, what's really cool is that sometimes you'll have someone that really does a deep dive into the case, like you guys, and you come up with answers, which is awesome. You know, just because we're detectives doesn't mean we have all the answers. It doesn't. We just have the experience to parlay into each case, but we miss stuff too. Okay, that's an interesting uh, point of view and a question that I wanted to ask, but I almost forgot. Uh, as someone who is in law enforcement, how do you view uh, people like uh, Tim and myself, you know, other than devastatingly handsome? Um, how do you view uh, the, the true crime community, the armchair detectives? Is there anything that you want to say to them, like how to approach something, how to approach law enforcement, what to expect? Sure. I think remaining objective is number one. 
you can't go in with a preconceived notion and make the puzzle pieces fit your story. That's not how it works. You have to stay detached. You have to stay objective and clinical. And it's hard to do, especially when you're faced with, you know, maybe a horrendous murder. It's not easy, but that's our job. So if you can do that and you can, you know, not take any conspiracy theory or preconceived notion into the case with you, and you can follow the leads where they go without any preconceived notion, I say, bring it. And if you want to approach law enforcement, you know, a lot of times law enforcement will keep a lot of things close to the vest for certain reasons. Either it's something that only the killer will know, or it's something that they have uh, buried for a, a specific reason. They're not going to give it to you, period. No matter how hard you try, they have their cold case squad, they have their homicide squad, that's their deal. But with the information that's available, you can still go in and do FOIA requests, autopsy reports, uh, things like that, that will give you some clues. So I say go for it. Great. Yeah, very good. Very good advice. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's funny that you said something um, a few minutes ago and you uh, about Agatha Christie and Moore Murray and you and you're like that's just what came to mind but you know what do I know I actually wanted to tell you what you know <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> no because I was about to say like I'm reading your bio and I was looking at all of all of your uh, accomplishments and an opinion like that from someone like you is hugely valuable to people like us working on these cases you know what listen one of the hardest things I have to say when I testify in court is I don't know yeah and I try very hard to avoid that when I can. But if I don't have the science and something tangible to back up my opinion, which is what experts give as their opinion, right? We're deemed by a judge, so we're allowed to do that. But it's incumbent on us to follow the evidence and follow the science. Sometimes that doesn't happen with certain people. For me, if I didn't have an answer, a solid answer to present to that jury, my answer was, I don't know. And it was fine with my prosecutors. They would just gloss it over and go to the next question. Because if there's not an answer to give, what am I supposed to do? It's not my job. Like I said, to fit the puzzle pieces together, my job is to tell the truth. Yeah, Karen, it is your job now, though, because you're a podcaster. So that's where the speculation takes over now. <laughs> you can just run with it. it works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wildly run with it. Podcast yeah. to get the truth. You're going to get everything that happened and you're going to get all the evidence put together in one little package. Great. Yep. And it's going to be just like TV. Absolutely. Yeah. Just like NCIS. Tune in. Yep. <laughs> um, right. So I have a quick question um, about a case that Tim and I are covering on Crawl Space. Uh, we've been doing it for a few months now. Uh, it's a case of Sheila Shepard from Saratoga Springs, New York. She was murdered in 1980. Uh, oh, wow. She was stabbed post-mortem in her stomach, right below her navel. Um, have you ever come across something like that where the killer, it wasn't even like a violent stab wound. It, it was, it, it seemed like I, as gentle as it could be as far as a stab wound is concerned. Like it, it really wasn't even all the way in. It wasn't even up to the hilt and it was a kitchen knife. Have you ever seen anything like that? Peekerism. Yes. What? Where Peekerism, which is basically just taking the tip of the knife and going in and out, in and out, in and out numerous times. And it's normally, I've seen it with uh, drug deals gone bad where they've tried to get information from the person that's going to be murdered. Uh, they'll stab them in the shoulder, or in the chest, or in the stomach with just the tip of the blade to cause pain. 
So, you know, I, I haven't seen the autopsy report. I haven't seen the photographs. I can't speak too much about it. Yeah. But below her navel, I mean, that's the uterus. So was there something about her being pregnant? Was there a possibility of that? Um, well, I don't know. So I guess it, it was a post-mortem wound. Uh, so there was, there was no blood, no blood right. flow at all from it. And it was just one, um, stab and she was asphyxiated. So I guess, so oh, yeah, it was just oh, one okay. and the knife was left in. Yeah. Oh, wow. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. And I then know. covered with a sheet as well. Oh, so the killer covered her with a sheet? Yeah. Presumably. Oh, wow. Okay. So presumably. And well, tied, her, tied her to the bed, uh, nude, spread out. Oh, so he posed her, covered with a sheet, left a knife stuck in her abdomen. Yeah. And what are you said? And uh, yeah, asphyxiated her. We, we're not sure exactly with what, um, some wow. uh, speculation of a pillow, but we don't know. Well, A, the killer knew her. Uh, that is not something that, no, they, they definitely knew each other. Was there forced entry? Uh, not, no, there was no, no forced entry. She had, she left her window open. This was November. It was, it was cold, but she, uh, oftentimes left her window open in case her brother needed to access the apartment, I guess, but unlocked. he wasn't even around. Yeah. Unlocked. Like, yeah. Unlocked. Yeah. Sorry. Not open. Unlocked. But that kind of only is a detail that com um, you know, could complicate, uh, everything because we don't know that the killer came through the window. Right. Well, was it open or closed when the police got there? Well, so her door was locked. Her Locked from the inside? Was it a deadbolt or was it a, a knob? In other words, would she have had to, or the killer or somebody would have to have locked it from the inside? Yes, the killer, or, yes. or had used a key, yes. Okay. And hmm. her, her uncle found the body. He went up the fire escape and went through that open window and essentially crawled over the body and pulled the sheet back clearly saw that she was dead and then he left the apartment through the front door to tell um it was it was her mother and her aunt right tim was her mother there at the time uh i believe so yeah it was her mother and her aunt and said you know we got to call the police uh and he wouldn't let them go in and i don't think he remembers he was questioned but i don't think he remembers if he had to unlock the door to get out these are what would hink me up if i entered that crime scene you know was the door locked was it not was the window up was it down are there fingerprints is there dna now we have dna i mean back in 1980 that wasn't even a thought in their brain you right. know did any fingerprint processing of the window i'm sure they did her body would tell a story we would do dna swabs of her neck of the bed sheets of her body i mean there's so many more technological advances now that may have helped solve that case that just weren't available back then so i would want to go and do a deep dive into any evidence that's left in the property room if it's still there and yeah. see if any touch dna use the mvac and see if there's any foreign male dna that could be found and then you know you've got paul holes and the whole golden state killer thing that used ancestral dna to get d'angelo so there's all these new technologies available and yes. that that's the kind of stuff that needs to happen with a case like that. Yeah. And uh, there is some some evidence that is uh, waiting awaiting retesting um, in the New York State Crime Lab. I'm not sure if it's been retested yet, but I know it had been uh, sort of uh, in a little bit of a jam um, as far as the queue goes. Um, yeah. But there is some hope that there could be uh, the killer's DNA. Yeah. Well, that's great news. I hope they find some answers. That needs to happen because somebody's been running around free all this time, and that is not cool. That that needs to be closed. So I hope and they find the answers. We'll throw one more uh, detail about this case at you. There is a witness account of 
somebody in the apartment a few nights later. This witness was walking. I think it was around like 11 p.m. Might have been right between like 11 and 12. Yep. And so it's dark out. And the witness swears that there was a flashlight moving around in the apartment. And if you've seen a flashlight in a dark room through a window, it's a pretty clear, you know, you don't mistake a flashlight for something else. It's not somebody turning a light on. It's not a reflection. You know, this guy. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So um, the police went back and checked it out and said that there was nobody in there. Uh, But there was uh, pictures missing, family photos missing. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then the the keys were found. Um, Sheila's keys were then later found across the street um, after the winter um, and after the initial search that took place when she was um, murdered. Uh, so, and and this this account of the apartment with the flashlight was like a week later. So I don't know. Me me and Lance think that the killer might may have kept those keys originally, gone back, taken pictures, and dropped the keys across the street. Uh, you know what? Listen, you can't discount any theory at this point because we just don't know what happened but witnesses you know they're they're notoriously reliable and unreliable and that's the hard part is you don't know if this person has an agenda behind what they saw or they don't and that's the hard part when you have witnesses we used to do when i would teach at the academy you know we would do the whole thing where in the middle of one of my lectures somebody would run in and take you know push down and take something out of the room And the recruits would be sitting there with their eyes buggered out. And I'd say, okay, stop what you're doing. Take out a pencil and paper and write down what you just saw. And inevitably I would get a red, red and black checkered shirt, a blue and yellow checkered shirt. Uh, He took an eraser. He took a pen. He pushed Karen down. No, he punched Karen in the face. So all of these different things would come out and I would read the statements out loud. And then we would tell them exactly what happened. And all of them were sitting there going, oh, and I'd say, that's why witnesses are great in some points and they're really horrible in others. Right. And for the most part, we're dealing with witnesses that didn't um, expect to be in that situation in the first place. So it's not even like they're going out there preparing to commit everything to memory. Of course not. And, you know, you remember every detail of every moment. There are people that do. I don't know how they do it, but me, I'm not that person. I've got a really good memory when something's burned into it and I can remember Mm. every detail. And, you know, other days are just in the wind. So who knows? It's an interesting case for sure. Yeah. Maybe maybe in the future we can um, introduce you uh, to the investigators that are working on it and uh, show you some of the case files. And, and, you know, if you have time, it'd be uh, cool to dig a little bit deeper with you. But you do have your show, Shattered Souls. We don't want to get in the way of that because... Oh, okay. Listen, I'm always willing to help. If, if somebody thinks they need something that I can offer, I'm always here and I'm always willing to help out. Cool. Awesome. Well, and you, and, and you make us feel smarter too, which is always appreciated. <laughs> Listen, I am, I am not the smartest person on the planet. I just know what I know, but more importantly, I know what I don't know. And that's a lot. So, you know, call me humble, call me whatever. But I think going into a case with that attitude is the way to be. You can't go in thinking that you have the answers because none of us do. We weren't there. If we were there, we'd be a witness. That's right. Good point. Well, thanks, Karen. That was, that's amazing. Uh, I really, really appreciate you uh, coming on and spending some time with us, talking to us about your career and your new show, Shattered Souls. Can't wait to check it out. Thanks. I really appreciate the platform, guys, and the time. 